Like Dom said, last week we finally jumped back into our Kingdom Family series in the book of Ephesians. And last week specifically, we focused on chapter 5, verse 19, where Paul exhorts the Ephesian church to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves. Uh, We looked at how musical worship is this corporate thing that both uh, synchronizes and calibrates our hearts to the heartbeat of God. Uh, It brings our emotions into alignment with the truth of what we sing, and it also brings unity among the people of God. We looked at how singing together is a supernatural resonance of God's glory on the earth, right? We're like the strings on an instrument and we've been tensioned and tuned. Our lives have been tensioned and tuned to the frequency of the kingdom in order that we might resonate in harmony with one another. And that creates a beautiful, powerful, and undeniable testimony of who God is, what he has done, and what he wants to do in the world. So that was last week. This morning, we're going to actually be drilling down into the second half of verse 19. And uh, this morning, I'm going to read uh, verses 18 through 21, because this is one congruent thought that Paul is communicating. Uh, A lot of translations will break it up into punctuation, but it's really one fluid idea. Uh, This morning, I'm going to be reading and teaching like last week from the New Living Translation. The title of our sermon is From the Heart to the Heavens. Paul's writing, he says, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Church, this is God's holy and right and true word. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, God, for the gift of music. We thank you for what it does in the human heart. And Lord, we thank you that for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, music has been redeemed to be this wonderful expression of praise and honor to you. And Lord, I ask this morning that you would open up our hearts specifically, open up our hearts, Lord, to receive what you want to speak to us today. For those that maybe feel far off this morning, feel distant from you, Lord, I pray that in your loving kindness, you would draw us all nearer back to yourself, Lord. Pray, Lord, that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be from you, and for you, for your glory, Jesus, and for the edification of your church. I pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start this morning with the story of the first time that I experienced Pentecostal worship. Um, I was uh, raised in the Presbyterian church, uh, spent most of my life in the Presbyterian church, and uh, Presbyterians are sometimes referred to as the frozen chosen Um, because musical worship in the Presbyterian church, while it's very beautiful and very reverent uh, and honoring to God, it's not the most physically expressive kind of worship, right? Like if if somebody raised their hands in worship, it was like, that's like kind of a big deal in the church. So that's what I grew up with. Um, And then I met my wife, Elena. 
and she went to a different church. She grew up in a different church in Ventura, which was much more charismatic than the Presbyterian church that I grew up in. And uh, we, started to, we started dating and there's this like really awkward thing. If you're dating someone right now and you're like a Christian, it's just this awkward thing where you start dating someone and you're like, what church do we go to? Like, which church do we go to? We both were, you know, were involved in our different churches and we're like, which church do we go to? And so for, um, so for a while, we just kind of switched off. We alternated churches. And I will never forget the first time that I attended church with my wife. Right here, I am, this little Presby kid uh, in the sea of uh, hand raising, flag waving, Pentecostal <laughs> worshipers. Right, and the opening song that morning, I remember it was that song, "Days of Elijah." Do you remember the song, "Days of Elijah"? If you've been a Christian for a while, you know "Days of Elijah." It's like these are the days of Elijah, declaring the name of the Lord. It's that song. It's like really old school, contemporary '90s Christian worship. Uh, And so everyone around me is just going nuts, right? They're just like going for it in worship. And at this point in my Christian experience, I had no idea what a shofar was. (laughs) If you don't know what a shofar is, uh, it's basically, it's a a trumpet that is made out of a ram's horn. I think it was a ram's horn. And it was used in the Old Testament often. And it's very loud. It's very loud. So here we are, days of Elijah, people are going crazy and we're about to hit the chorus, right? It's like, prepare ye the way of the Lord, behold he. And then right on the chorus, I hear this, this felt like straight into my ear canal. I felt this just loud cacophonous sound enter into my eardrums. And this very kind gentleman who was sitting behind me, uh, he had brought his shofar to church uh, and he was very excited to express himself in worship using his shofar. And after church, Elena says, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you about that guy. <laughs> I'm like, thanks for the heads up. I was baptized by shofar into the realm of Pentecostal worship. And I don't share that story to knock Presbyterian or Pentecostal worship, but it does provoke an interesting question. And it's a question that people have been asking for thousands of years, which is how do we worship God? More specifically, how do we express ourselves to God in praise or musical worship? What is musical worship supposed to look like? I think this question is best summarized uh, by what the Samaritan woman asks Jesus in John chapter four. We had a whole sermon series on John chapter four just a few weeks ago. Um, And in John chapter four, Jesus has just revealed like the deepest, darkest, secret, most shameful part of this woman's life. And then she asks him this question about worship. She says, sir, you must be a prophet, obviously. Uh, And here's the question she asks. She says, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? And to just paraphrase that a little bit, uh, what she's asking, she's saying, your people say that worship looks like this. Your people say that worship looks this way. And my people say that it looks that way. So what is the right way to worship? What should worship look like? Look at how Jesus responds to her. He says, Believe me, dear woman, 
The time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying what's important is not where worship takes place. What is important about worship is where it is directed and where it comes from. And I believe that this is the heartbeat of our verse this morning. Paul's words to the Ephesian church are akin to Jesus' response to the Samaritan woman, right? Um, So the the last Sunday, last Sunday we looked at uh, kind of the horizontal nature of worship. What happens when we sing together? Worship is something that we do together corporately. That worship is uh, meant to be kind of the shared experience. But the second half of this verse uh, that we're looking at this morning is really about the vertical nature of worship. Paul says to the Christian, he says, uh, make music to the Lord in your hearts, to the Lord. The Lord is always the object of our worship. And this is the first thing that I want us to see this morning. It sounds obvious, but there's so much good truth here. Even though we might be singing with and sometimes to one another as an encouragement, like we looked at last Sunday, God is always the focal point of our worship. He is both the object and the audience, the subject of our praise. Like I said, that can almost sound cliche a little bit, right? An audience of one. But it can so easily become inverted, especially in our day and age and culture. It can be so easy to be deceived into thinking that we are the audience of worship, that worship exists primarily for us, that worship is primarily about what we receive, that worship is about our experience. And when we entertain that idea that we are the audience, it leads us to a whole host of wrong beliefs about worship. If we become the audience, then worship becomes about the style of music that we like or dislike, right? Worship becomes about the, uh, the, the, the songs that we sing or we don't sing, right? It's like, oh, I wish my church would just play more Hillsong <laughs> or I wish my church would play no Hillsong. Like, why don't we sing more hymns? The music is too emo, play more happy music. When we become the audience, worship becomes about how good or quiet or bad The sound mix is, I did sound here for like almost four years before I did anything on a stage. And I remember this one time where uh, this this guy came up to me mid-service and he's like, hey, can you turn the reverb down? And if you don't know anything about sound mixing, reverb is like the least important thing about a sound mix. It helps the vocals sound really nice and pretty, but it's not like gonna kill you. But this guy was like, hey, can you please turn the reverb down? When we become the audience, then worship uh, becomes about which worship leader we think is our favorite, right? We spiritualize it a little bit. We're like, oh yeah, that person is so anointed. Like when they lead worship, I just, I just receive. I just respond better to the way that they lead. But that's just consumerism cloaked in spirituality. You know, often in American Christianity, we treat our worship and our church experience like a Subway sandwich. Here's what I like. Here's what I don't like. Here's the toppings that I want. 
I want a nicely balanced sound mix with a peak decibel rating of 85 to 95 dB with a decent combination of hymns and contemporary worship. <laughs> you know, those spontaneous moments, they kind of weird me out. It's not really my flavor. It would be great if the worship leader was like maybe late 20s, early 30s, you know, not like totally a pretentious hipster, but like still kind of relevant, like somewhere between skinny jeans and dad jeans. That's what I'm looking for in a worship leader. I know that's really funny, but isn't that a picture of where our hearts go sometimes? How our hearts are drawn to preferences, what we like, what we don't like. And sometimes we can let those things affect the way we see church, the way that we see worship. A few years ago, I was uh, in the church office here at our building, and uh, I wasn't on staff yet, but my wife was on staff. And uh, sometimes I like to just bring her lunch uh, to the office. And so, uh, you know, I'm sitting there just doing some work on my laptop. My wife's working there. And the last Sunday, I had led worship with uh, Katie Rios, who's right here in our audience this morning. Uh, She is one of our incredibly talented, anointed, gifted worship leaders. Um, And while I'm in the office, this really sweet gentleman, uh, he stopped by to meet with one of the elders. And while he was waiting, he was uh, chit-chatting with Jill, who was our former uh, receptionist. And then all of a sudden he starts talking about last week's worship set. And this is what he said. He's like, oh my gosh, worship was so great. The girl that was singing, oh man, she just had the most amazing, beautiful voice. Like, wow, I was so blown away. It was so powerful. And in my head, I'm like, oh, that's so, that's so great. I'm going to like make sure I tell Katie because it's so encouraging. And then he pauses for a moment. And then he says, but I didn't really care for the guy that was singing. And I'm sitting right there in the room trying to hold this together, right? He had no idea that I was in the room while he was saying that. And my wife is just like giggling. She's losing it, like internally. She's like giggling and she's like sending me every emoji possible. It was top three most awkward moments in my entire life. And I fully believe that God uh, used that horribly awkward moment to humble my heart, but this is an example of what can happen when we forget who the audience is. And if we are to worship the way that Paul is calling us to worship, we cannot be the audience. Worship involves us. We are participants. We're engaged. And it deeply benefits us, right? We receive something in worship, but worship is not primarily about us. And it certainly is not for us or to us. We are not the audience. Worship is always to, for, and about Jesus. At Reality Ventura, we have tried our best to direct everything that we do in musical worship toward God. Even like the songs that we pick on a Sunday, right? We don't just hear the latest and greatest thing that came out on Spotify and go, oh yeah, we're just gonna do that on Sunday. We actually analyze the lyrics. We think deeply about them to make sure that what we're singing is Christ-centered and Christ-exalting. And there's a song that's like really good and we're like, oh, this is a really good song. But there's this like one line that just doesn't feel right. just feels confusing. We're not really sure what it means. We'll just change the lyric. (laughs) We'll just write a new lyric that is Christ-exalting. We do that all the time. One of the things that we do is uh, if you've been in our sanctuary, we actually intentionally backlight the worship team. We don't have any light during worship on the faces of the worship leaders. Sometimes people come up to me and they're like, oh, your guys' lights are broke. Your stage lights are broke. And I'm like, no, we do that on purpose. 
We do that on purpose because it's not about who's standing there. Even our like stage design is, has this whole philosophy in mind, right? If you've been here, we don't put worship leaders in the center of the stage. Worship leaders are always off to the side because guess what's in the center? The lyrics. Even this backdrop right here, even like the way we design this backdrop, this like these, these like angled pieces of wood, it's all meant to direct your eyes and your attention upward toward the lyrics that we're singing because that's what matters. Worship is not about who is on a stage. Worship is about who is on the throne. And everything that we do in worship should be directed toward his throne. Last week, I read a passage from Revelation chapter seven, but I wanna read it again this morning because it's so good. The apostle John writes, he says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. In the apostle John's vision of heavenly consummate worship, everything and everyone is centered around the throne. All of the attention and the affection and the praise is being directed toward Jesus. There's no stage. There's no band. There aren't any, even any worship leaders mentioned in this account. There is just Jesus on his throne with every tribe and tongue and angel gathered around him and it is perfect. God is always the object of our worship. So we know where worship should go. It should be centered around Jesus, it should be directed toward Jesus. But where does worship come from? Where does worship originate? Paul exhorts the Christian to make music to the Lord. Thing that I want us to see this morning. The word that Paul uses for heart is this word cardia. It's where we get the physiological term cardio, which is a loathsome term for me because I hate doing cardio. But in the ancient Greek, uh, cardia had a much broader, more spiritual context to it. Cardia denotes the center of all physical and spiritual life. Cardia is like the deep end of your soul. Biblical scholars actually define cardia as the soul or mind as it is the fountain and the seat of the thoughts, passions, desires, appetites, affections, purposes, and endeavors. And I really want to hang out on that picture of the heart for a moment. The heart is both the seat and the fountain of our souls. The heart is like a seat. It's a seat. It's like a throne. And whatever sits on that throne governs our thoughts, our passions, our desires, our appetites, our affections. Jesus said, 
where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That thing that rules over our life has power over us. It could be uh, sin. It could be lust, addiction, greed. It could be uh, affliction even. It could be fear, uh, anxiety, or guilt. It could even be something really good like career or family or maybe even physical healing. And if we are going to truly worship God from our hearts, it has to start with the dethroning and removal of anything or anyone who is not God. That's where it has to start. Because as long as someone or something other than Jesus sits upon our heart, we will never be able to worship God openly and honestly. We might actually even start to worship God in order to serve the thing that is sitting on our heart, right? I might start worshiping God because maybe if I give him enough praise, he's gonna come through with that promotion that I so badly want or that financial breakthrough that I'm looking for. Or maybe if I sing and praise loud enough or dance hard enough, God is gonna bring that healing that I've been waiting for. And it's tricky because a lot of times that can feel like faith-filled worship, but deep down, it's actually performance-filled worship, right? Maybe if I worship God hard enough, I'll get the thing that my heart desires. At that point, God just becomes a glorified butler, right? Bringing to us our greatest desires instead of bringing us to himself, which is the point of worship. If Jesus is not at the center of us, then our worship will never be centered around him. And so whatever is on, on the throne of our hearts, whatever is enthroned upon our hearts has to be vacated. But there's a problem. The problem is that we are utterly powerless to remove what needs to be removed from the seat of our heart. Scottish preacher uh, Thomas Chalmers said this about the heart. He said, such is the grasping tendency of the human heart that it must have something to lay hold of and which if rested away without the substitution of another something in its place would leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. In other words, our best efforts will fall short. We need the power of something or someone greater. And the good news today is that Jesus has the power to remove whatever is sitting on your heart a thousand times over. And when you invite Jesus into your heart to take his rightful place on the throne of your heart, he is always faithful to drop kick that lesser thing right off the seat of your heart. He's the only one. He's the only one who can really do it. Let's go back to that biblical definition of, of the heart, right? The heart is not only a seat, the heart is also a fountain. The heart overflows with passion, and desire, adoration, affection, and praise for whatever or whoever is ruling it. Uh, last week, uh, last Saturday actually, uh, my family and I decided to go out to eat over at the collection uh, in the annex. They have all this outdoor seating. It's really awesome. Um, and uh, we decided to go to one of our favorite ramen places. And this particular trip, uh, I decided to try a different kind of ramen. It was like a risky move because if you know me, I'm kind of a ramen snob. 
Um, I have a pretty high bar for, uh, for ramen excellence. So uh, I was kind of anxious about my decision, but it was so good. The broth was like so balanced. The texture of the noodles was perfect. The pork belly was just smoky and it was juicy. It was bursting with flavor. And I could not stop talking about it. I'm pretty sure my wife was annoyed at the, by the time we were done because I just like would not shut up about how good this ramen was. My heart was overflowing with praise for this ramen. When we've tasted the goodness of God, when we've savored the sweetness of our salvation and we have drank deeply of his divine love, our hearts overflow with affection and praise for him. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because praise is not, praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Jesus said it even better in Luke 6, 45. He said, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It doesn't matter where your worship is, it's where it comes from. Worship is the overflowing expression of adoration from the fountain of the heart. It's the outpouring of praise from the cardia, the center of our being, from the deepest measure of our soul. It is allowing out of our mouths that which has flooded our hearts. It is allowing out of our physical bodies that which has captivated our being. This is why sometimes we take a physical posture of, of praise in worship, right? Uh, we lift our hands as an expression of surrender to God. I think about my daughter who is, uh, she's one and a half. So she's kind of like, got, she got some communication skills now. And whenever she just wants to like be with me, whenever she just wants to be held by me, she just walks up to my feet and she just puts her hands in the air and she says, Dada, up. That's the kind of expression that we're making when we lift our hands in worship. We bow on our faces before the Lord as an expression of his holiness. Just like that scene in Revelation, we bow, we take a physical posture of bowing before Jesus. Some of us might even blow a shofar. But if that's you, please uh, sign up for the worship team first. That'd be awesome. Some of us even dance before the Lord as an expression of the joy and freedom that we have in Christ, right? Like King David did in, in the book of 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter six, there's this beautiful scene where they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, into the capital city uh, as per David's order. And David is just dancing and worshiping before the Lord with all of his might. He's even doing it in his undergarment. His, a linen ephod is what the, what the Hebrew says. And, uh, and he's just dancing with all his might before the Lord. And then his wife calls him out on it. She says, you're just, you're like totally blowing it. You're making yourself so undignified. And David just says, I was worshiping before the Lord and I will become even more undignified than this. His expression of worship cannot be contained in words alone. But none of that matters the hand lifting, the bowing, how loud we sing, none of it matters if it doesn't come from the heart. 
any true and honest expression of worship must originate in our hearts. And for some of us, especially those of us who have been Christians for a long time, it can be so easy to show up, sing loud and lift our hands and yet not be worshiping from the heart. It can be really easy to fall into the trap of having an external worship experience only. And that can be a very, very dangerous place because in our minds, we think we are somehow satisfying God, but in reality, our hearts just aren't engaged. We're thinking about the business deal next week or what we're gonna have for lunch. Like our hearts are not engaged, even though we might look like we're in it, like we're all in. It's not coming from the heart. Listen to the prophet Isaiah's words about this. He says, these people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. Prophet Joel echoed this same sentiment when he said, rend your hearts, not your garments. The tearing of garments in the Old Testament was this uh, expression of repentance and lament. And so what, what the prophet Joel is saying is like, before you tear your clothes, before you give me some fake expression of worship, open up your heart before me, tear your heart open before me. King David in examining his own heart said this in Psalm chapter 51. He said, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And you, O God, will not despise. God's not interested in your clean, polished acts of worship. He wants your messy, scuffed up heart. That's what he's after. That's what God wants. So often we think that God wants our rituals, but rituals mean nothing unless our heart is responding. Rituals alone won't get you anywhere with God. But when you respond to God with an honest and open heart, radical things happen. When you respond with an open and honest heart, God speaks, God moves, God convicts in the most beautiful kind of way. God reveals himself. In this place of open-hearted worship, God calls people to vocation, to location. God even calls people to the nations in worship. Dave Lomas, who planted uh, Reality San Francisco, he was called to San Francisco in a moment of worship. He was surrendered before the Lord. He said, Lord, whatever you want, And God said, I want you to go plant a church in San Francisco. Reality San Francisco is the largest church in metropolitan San Francisco. That church exists. That church of like thousands of people exists because of one moment of open-hearted worship. What God does in a moment of worship can actually change the world. What God does with one anointed worship lyric can actually change the course of your entire life. What God does with one song can lead your heart from a place of fear to faith. What God does with one melody can bring you from helplessness to hopefulness. What God does with one spontaneous moment of praise can carry you from captivity to freedom. But that kind of transformation cannot happen outside of the heart. 
It can't happen on the surface. It must happen in the depths of your being. It has to happen in the deep end of your soul. It does not happen because you sing loud or because you lift your hands or because you dance around. It doesn't happen because you've got the rituals down. Transformation happens because you let Jesus take the throne on your heart. Transformation happens when you open up your heart to God and let him do what he wants to do. When you let him say what he wants to say, when you let him reveal what he wants to reveal. Never underestimate what God can do in a moment of worship. When we allow Jesus to take the throne of our hearts, our hearts and our lives even will become a fountain of praise and worship, pouring out for the glory of God. And when our hearts become a fountain of praise, so too do our lives become a fountain of praise. So church, let's worship God from the heart today. Amen. Lord, I want to pray right now for, for two people. I want to pray for the person who has always been distant in worship, whose heart has maybe never been engaged because of their perceptions of worship. But Lord, I don't think it's a perception problem. I think it's an affection problem. I think it's a problem with the affections of the heart, Lord. And so I want to ask that for that person who has been uh, just distant from you in worship, who's been unengaged, who's been far off in worship, I want to ask God by your kindness, by your grace, by your mercy this morning, you would draw that person in. That you would reveal to that person how valuable it is, what you can actually do in a moment of worship. That it's not about our preferences. It's not about our perceptions. It's about the affection that we have for a God who so loved us that he sent his one and only son so that all who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And God, I also want to pray this morning for the person who's been a Christian their entire life or for decades. Who's been going through the motions who by any account looks like a spirit-filled worship leader, worship, worshiper of God, but whose heart has grown cold and distracted with other things, Lord. I pray, God, that you would free us from rituals today and that you would cut to the heart of what it means to worship you. We repent before you. I repent before you, God, for every single time, God, that I have worshiped you without my heart. The times where I've worshiped you just with my mind or my thoughts, but my heart wasn't there. And I know, God, that there are people like me on the other side of this camera. There are people who are sitting in living rooms right now who feel the same way. Like, God, like, oh, my heart. I don't know where my heart is. I pray, God, that we would be able by the power of the Holy Spirit to rend our hearts this morning, to open up with vulnerability and honesty before you. And Lord, as we do that, may we experience that kind of transformation, that kind of heart transformation that leads us to freedom 
I wanna encourage you during the second set of worship to be as present as you possibly can with the Lord. That can feel really scary, honestly, uh, even terrifying to like let yourself be fully open, to be fully open before anyone. It's hard for me to be fully honest with myself sometimes, let alone anyone else, let alone the almighty God of the universe. But I wanna tell you, that's, that's the best thing that you can do today. Maybe this morning you need to take a physical posture of praise. Sometimes taking a posture of praise can actually help lead our hearts into worship. So maybe this morning you just need to get down on the floor of your living room with your face to the ground and say, Lord, here's my heart. Maybe today you need to lift your hands and worship for the first time because you just like feel the affection of God flowing through, through you, through your heart. And if today you're watching and maybe your heart is disconnected because you actually don't know Jesus, because you don't have salvation in him, I wanna encourage you that the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. There's a, a button, uh, if you're watching on our website, there's a button, there's a link in our YouTube description. If that's you today, if you're watching this, and you're like, dude, I don't know Jesus, but man, I want to. That's the place to go, click on that button. You can fill out some information and somebody would love to contact you and, and talk with you. If you need prayer today for any reason, if you need someone to help you, help lead your heart into a place of worship, like we'd love to help you with that. There are people that will call you to talk you through that, to pray with you. Church, let's worship with our heart today. Let's worship from the cardia, from the center of our being. And let it be directed today to the Lord God Almighty, the one who is sitting on the throne of heaven and earth. Amen.